0: And so um, mostly church has looked like a gathering in our living room, because one of the things we really want people to understand is that church is a living community, um, not a place, not an event, not a function. It's a, it's the people. Um, but even saying that, uh, most of the time I, I say, so I always introduce myself as a pastor. I'm the pastor of a church. People say, where is your church? That's the first uh-huh. question. Like, which street is it on, right? And I say, <laughs> I say, well, it's in my living room. And the amount of times that people just like blank, like they have no concept. They don't even know what to ask next. And then they change the subject. So I'm still working on like, how do I say this in a way that we can keep talking because the disconnect is so big um, between the sort of institution and cultural landmark versus the living body of Christ.
1: Welcome everybody to another episode of the Communitas Podcast. Really excited today to be joined by uh, some new friends that we've recently teamed up with in the Greater London area. They'll have much more to say about that, and Joy Preston with us as well today. And we are joined by Ollie Smith and Constance MacIntosh Smith, otherwise known as the Smiths. And we're so glad that you guys are here today. Thanks for having hey, us. Yeah,
0: we're glad to, glad to be here.
1: So let everybody know exactly where you are in the UK.
0: We live in Walthamstow, which is in East London, uh, famous for um, Cockney accents and uh, working-class blue-collar culture.
2: Right. Yeah, it's like if you imagine if you imagine London as a clock, we're at about like two p.m. on the clock.
1: Two p.m. Okay, good. Yeah. So that's helpful. So Ollie uh, you're an American that's just pretending to use a British accent is that
2: <laughs> yeah definitely no um yeah I w- I wish I wish it was this good no I'm um, I'm originally from um a place called Bedfordshire. Uh, I moved to London about 19 years ago so um my my accent is thick in places and wrong in other places mm-hmm. and then being married to an American makes it even weirder because then I use. Weird Americanisms at home that I was never raised to use. So
1: that's right. And Constance, you probably use weird things in your conversation that we wouldn't understand in America. So,
0: well, yeah. And I'll apologize in advance for whatever I'm going to say that's going to not translate. I don't actually filter it very <laughs> well anymore because I've been here 13 years and now I'm just confused.
1: That's right. And Constance, <laughs> what about you? You grew up in the States. So, what's your background?
0: Um, well I claim Asheville North Carolina as home um but my family moved a lot so I've lived all over the southeast and a couple other places like South Dakota and Colorado just for fun
1: fabulous uh well you guys are leaders in a church project uh there and we'd love to hear more about that but maybe give us a little bit of some some background as you know how it how you guys got to where you are today what were some of your, you know, your growings up, what was that like? Did, did you grow up as churched folks? And what has the journey been like?
0: Um, we have two very different stories. So I'll go first, and his is uh, probably better, honestly. But um, <laughs> I grew up in the church. Um, I grew up in a sort of particular brand of church that um, was very convinced that they were right about all the things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew up also convinced that the people that were leading me were right about all the things um which is a bit of a double edged sword because as a kid you want to be right about all the things so that gives you a lot of confidence yeah. um and then and then you start asking questions and it all kind of tends to fall apart and then you're stuck with well what are the things then um so my particular story is um i grew up in a tradition that uh does not affirm women leaders i had leadership gifts Um, And was pretty confused about that. I also um, had some difficult family dynamics going on. And so when I got to university, I felt called to mission or not mission, but like ministry. Um, Well, I felt called to mission, but I told God, no, thank you. I would like to be a philosophy professor So let's put a pin in that. I will lead a a campus ministry instead, and we can call it quits. So I'm leading this campus ministry in a denomination that does not allow women to be leaders, which was pretty confusing. And um, I became pretty convinced that I just needed to perform perfectly all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, I'm I'm a pretty high performer anyway. I um, I was at uni on a full ride. I'm good at looking like I have stuff together. And so I fooled I, – I don't know how well I fooled people. I fooled people well enough that they didn't say anything to me is what mm. I'm – like. they kept letting me lead things. Mm. Um, but in, inside I was really crumbling. Um, depression, eating disorder, self-harm, all the classics. Mm. Um, amidst all of this, while I'm, you know, getting to bachelor's and leading a campus ministry, God keeps doing the like, hey – That mission thing, I said, that mission thing, like poking me in odd moments. So I decide, I was like, okay, new bargain. I will give you a summer internship and then you will get off my case and let me be a philosophy professor.
1: So Did did God ever say say you can't do that?
0: No. (laughs) No, okay. I wish, that would be good. Um, Although, um, small side note, when I came over here with my... American accent and tried to talk about Immanuel Kant um I was told please stop swearing so okay, uh, <laughs> okay. I <basically> can't hear <laughs> fun facts anyway um, so I I signed up for a summer mission internship and um the internship was good um But what it really did was it made me, uh, it brought me to a place of real like honesty Mm. because I had to depend on God. I was in a cross cultural situation that was very different from anything I was familiar with. Um, And suddenly I had to acknowledge to God that I was angry about how things went at church, that I was angry about things that had gone wrong with my family, that I didn't know who I was, that I wasn't functioning. Mm. Um, And Two things happened. On the one hand, like that moment of honesty really crumbled all of my like facade of being the good kid. Um, And on the other hand, I got this taste of like the kingdom of God is so much better, so much more than your performance. The kingdom Mm. of God is what changes things, it makes things real and it makes them worth suffering for. Um, And uh, that turned into a spiral in my head that um, I spent uh, a year to sort of. Falling apart um, and had to be rescued in a dream that I've never remembered. Mm. Um, Jesus had to sort of intervene and be like, okay, stop with the cutting yourself nonsense. Let's like live life. Wow. Um, but I woke up from this dream and was like, oh, I get it now. And ever since then, I've been on this like, this track of following God. I want to see other people come alive like that. It was yeah. really
3: good for me. <laughs> wow.
1: Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's yeah. so. So, when did, when did Ollie come into the picture for you?
0: Ollie and I have known each other since we were 19 and 20, but it took us five years to go from hate to friends, six, <laughs> six, six years to go from hate to friends, and then another year and a half to go from friends to, oh crap, I'm going to have to marry you, aren't I? And that was 12 years ago. <laughs>
1: Right. Anyway, good. fun. Well, yep. thank you for sharing. That that's going to give us a good foundation, I think, for some <laughs> of the conversation as it goes
2: forward.
1: Ali, <laughs> uh, <laughs> how about you?
2: Yeah, um, I will try and condense this so that it doesn't take up the whole um the whole time. But uh, <laughs> I I come from a non Christian background, so neither of my parents um, attended church when I was growing up or attend church now. Um, when I was about, when I was just becoming a teenager, they went through, um, a pretty messy divorce. And at the time I was an only child. And, uh, so I didn't really have brothers or sisters to kind of weather it through. And there were parts of it that were really ugly. And, uh, that basically sent me on a kind of, um, like spiritual seeker journey, um, And I tried things like, uh, Buddhist meditation and I, uh, lots of my friends were into kind of like Wicca and the occult and that kind of stuff. So I tried some of that. Um, I tried the kind of usual stuff that, you know, teenagers do like, you know, smoking drugs and hanging out with the wrong crowd, that kind of thing. And, um, Eventually I was like, well, I'm just going to give the Bible a try. And it was kind of like to write it off, you know, to be like, yeah, I've read a bit of this and it's rubbish and that way I don't need to have anything to do with it anymore. Um, and I was reading through the gospel of Matthew and probably not long after the sermon on the Mount, I just had this overwhelming sense that Jesus was still somehow in the world today Mm these things still somehow mattered and I found myself I didn't even really realize that I was praying at the time but I in the evenings I would just be like just before bed I would be like you know Jesus if you're there just you know help me out tomorrow or like help me to do this stuff that I need to do uh just very simply and um when I got to the end of reading the gospel i didn't know really what to do next so i started to read what i thought were the small books at the back like timothy (laughs) Titus, like all the all the letters and um i didn't understand any of them at all but i kept encountering this word church and i was like well i know what one of those is Mm. but i don't you know i don't know what that has to do with anything but I better go to one and find out if they know anything about this stuff. (laughs) Um, So basically I started going to a tiny little Baptist church um, in a neighboring village. And there was about 40 people um, there all over the age of 40 Mm -hmm. and me, 15 years old, um, not having a clue what was going on.
3: What were you wearing?
2: Um, I, oh yeah, I was wearing lots of like day glow color stuff. Cause I was like, you're supposed to wear your best stuff for church. <laughs> yeah. And I definitely misread that there. Um, but any, anyway, uh, they really, um, were some of the kindest, most genuine, mm-hmm. most authentic people that I had ever met. Mm-hmm. Um, they very quickly became the kind of family that I had lost. And they basically helped me to understand my experiences that I had been going through. Um, so when I was 16, I was baptized and I had this moment where when they plunged me under the water, uh, it was as if time stopped and I was just in this kind of um, like all around me was light and I felt felt this uh, presence of love and compassion like nothing I'd ever felt before. Mm. Um, I had really struggled to get my friends from school to come and attend my baptism because I'd been asked to like invite people I knew to, to come and witness what was happening. Uh, and they were all dead scared to come anywhere near a church. They were just terrified of even stepping into a church building for anything. Mm-hmm. And I think that is where my journey uh, towards... Uh, mission and the missional lifestyle came from was trying to work out why this thing had happened to me which was incredibly life-changing and why I was struggling so much with my friends who were so much like me um, to bring them along into the same kind of worshipping community I had Mm -hmm. Uh, and my a few years later basically my church said we don't really have enough for you to do here. We think you should move to London and try to do um try to do God's work there. So I moved here when I was 19, um, and have worked in three different church plants um since that time. Uh so that's been that's been my missional journey. Well, I've then- tried to get out of it a number of times. I've tried to <laughs> tell God yeah. like I'm done. Um, but he never sort of really lets me go. So
0: Doesn't accept the resignation. <laughs> Doesn't
2: accept my resignation. <laughs>
1: there you go. <laughs> and uh, education-wise too, you pursued education and theology. And explain that a little bit.
2: I did. Um, so I, I have dyslexia. Um, and uh, I left school when I was 16 with probably the most mediocre set of uh, qualifications you can have. Uh, And I really did for many, many years believe myself to be really stupid Mm. um, and just not not academically clever or gifted at all. Um, I think Constance sort of when we got married, she just sort of noticed the number of books that I read on my own um, and she would keep prodding me and saying, you know, you really should sort of go back to school and do something. And I was like, I want to go back to school. It was awful. Um, so I didn't go back to, I didn't go back into education until I was 31. Mm. Um, and then I, yeah, I studied, I studied theology and mission. Um, I studied religion. Uh, I studied the dynamics of how we use the word religion and all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it it feels it feels really odd to have done all the experience first and then gone into education but it's kind of been nice to do it that way
1: yeah i think i think that makes a lot of sense uh i, I am you you mentioned something earlier in uh, encountering the church and you said i should go to that place just to find out you know what what this is all about right if anybody there knows anything kind of thing I'm curious what, in your mind, and, and especially in your friends' minds at the time, and even throughout Europe today, how do people define church? How were how you defining it then, and how was it being defined today?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have much to go on apart from um, what I had learned at school through religious education classes um where basically you learn about the world's major religions and you learn you know where are their holy sites where do they go in a week to worship that kind of thing mm-hmm. um and so that's all i had to really go by we had a i had a school bus um that because i lived in a village and my school was in the next village over and the bus would basically pass this baptist church and um that's how i knew to go there Um, is just because I'd seen a physical building on the landscape. Um, Mm -hmm. The people I talk to, I think that still very much is um, the ingrained mindset amongst people who have no experience of church. A church is a building. Um, They are mostly buildings that are either about to be converted into houses or have been converted into houses. Um, They are... You know, in some cases, people sort of think of them as um, like uh, historical objects worth preserving. Uh, But just a large number of people that I know currently and certainly the people I grew up with, you know, for us, it was a building. Um, And so when I was reading the story of the gospel, it just didn't make any sense to me that anything I was reading would be connected with one of those things i mean i really i you know i knew the bible was the the text of christianity and i understood that christians went to to church but in my mind i didn't really understand how those things went together
3: so it's interesting that you noticed having been kind of coming from the outside these these two different things or at least not the same thing with what what you read in the bible and what you were seeing in life and i know you guys have had quite a journey since that time that you're talking about and kind of like Jeff was asking how, how would you say that you're interacting with church today? Because I know we chatted a little bit when we were in person together and it's, it's different than a physical location. And I don't know that it's even the exact same thing as what you've read about in scripture is probably how it's manifesting in your life. What does it look like? Um, well,
0: that is our main question, Joy. Um, we um, <laughs> the question. Well, it is so. Um, for more context, so we're we're in this neighborhood in East London, um, and East London being impoverished means that there aren't a lot of big fancy buildings. Um, especially our neighborhood, there's one small chapel that was ever built as a church building, and, and um, like in all of history, and it's still operating. Um, but like, there's just not like, um, there's not a lot of, um, physical, uh, visible cues of church here, mm-hmm. um, which is both a good and a bad thing. Cause on the one hand, you don't have to be like, no, I, when I say church, I don't specifically mean that building. Um, but, um, our big question is like, we live in a very diverse neighborhood. We live in a neighborhood where people are coming from. At least 30 different countries in the, just the streets around us. Um, we live in a very skeptical neighborhood that's not interested in organized religion. And we live in a neighborhood that's very like torn by gentrification. Um, and mm-hmm. here, um, one of the histories of the church is that um, a big church with a steeple is for rich people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. a small chapel is for poor people. And people and right now in the midst of all this sort of social flux neither one really appeals. Okay. Um and so when we say church um we're trying to figure out what that should look like for people mm-hmm. that live in this neighborhood who are coming from countries where your religion is prescribed or countries where religion is viewed with deep suspicion as like the cause of all evil in the world mm-hmm. which is this country. Um and mm-hmm. so um Mostly, church has looked like a gathering in our living room because one of the things we really want people to understand is that church is a living community, yeah. mm-hmm. um, not a place, not an event, not a function. It's a it's the people. Um, but even saying that, uh, most of the time we, I, I say so. I always introduce myself as a pastor. I'm the pastor of a church. People say, "Where is your church?" That's the first uh-huh. question. Like, which street is it on? Mm-hmm. Right, and I say, mm-hmm. I say, well, it's in my living room, and the amount of times that people just like blank, like they have mm-hmm. no concept, they don't even know what to ask next, and then they change the subject. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I'm still working on like how do I say this in a way that we can keep talking because <laughs> it, the disconnect is so big, yeah. um, between the sort of institution and cultural landmark versus the living body mm. of Christ,
3: and that's it's, a big gap, it's a between big gap. Those. Those two. And you just like succinctly put it right there front and center.
1: Ollie, I'm curious mm-hmm. how, how much of that translates. Another thing you mentioned was you invited your mates. Uh sorry, I'm trying to sound like a Brit. Um you invited <laughs> your
0: Australia.
1: Australia. Okay, no, no, I- that's that's here too. <laughs> okay, good. Okay. <laughs> um to, you know, come witness your baptism and the what you stated was that they were afraid, like like the church was was to be something to be afraid of. What what was that about?
2: Yeah, um, so if, uh, I think obviously, like you know, you have to be pretty blind to realize that when it's sort of not in an age of deconstruction, we we are very much in an age of deconstruction. And I think that um, when you so when you talk to people who are Christian and who have grown up in the church. Um, what they often want to deconstruct is like the, um, the, the way in which the gospel has been presented to them. So they want to do things mm. with a new kind of language or a new kind of way of being and so on and so forth. And so you're, you're, sort, of, you're sort of doing deconstructive work of how people have built their faith. I think that honestly when you talk, when you're in a post-Christian environment and you re- you really are talking to people who you know have never been to church um you know have uh, and perhaps whose parents and grandparents have maybe not been to church what you're doing is you're not doing exactly the same deconstructive work that you would do with with uh, with Christians you're doing this deconstructive work of essentially deconstructing stereotypes Mm -hmm. um and deconstructing you know the media's portrayal of church um so i mean i think you know in britain um there's there's definitely this kind of picture of you know either christians especially christian leadership is either a bit kind of like wet and washy on the one hand um or we are all very arrogant self-righteous sex predators And I think that what, like, what people are looking for is to, what what non-Christians are looking for is like, tell me that that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Because, you know, like, I know you, you're my neighbor. So demonstrate to me that 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 isn't the case. And it's a different kind of deconstructive work. So there is a lot of fear uh, and there is a lot of suspicion to get past. Um, And then there's just a lot of like, why are you not just like a vestige of a previous age that is now passing away? Mm. Um, And so, you know, in other words, like, what do you have to offer um, modern life? What do you have to offer my life? Um, And so I think that's, those are really the challenges when we talk to non-Christian people. It overlaps a bit with the deconstructive work we would do with Christians, but it's not the same thing. And I think that's really important to, uh, to keep in mind when you're, when you're church planting in a, in a post-Christian environment.
1: Yeah. Wow. So many things to kind of clue off from all of that. Um, I want to come back to the the question, you know, what do we have to offer? Um, but I want to preface that a little bit by by saying, you know, we live in this liminal space right now where I believe people are deeply seeking the spiritual and they're deeply seeking authentic community. And they're not finding that in in what they have termed the church. And so they throw the baby out with the bathwater in a sense. Um, At the same time though, in that liminal space, you know, what do we have to offer? I mean, if I were to be a 60 year old evangelical, um, that is not me, by the way. I'm just a 60 year old post evangelical, let's put it that way. Um, Cool. One would say, well, we have to offer the truth. We have to offer capital T truth. And that's what you're seeking. Now, that might be a a real pat answer. But how do we live in that space of, you mentioned um, almost, I think you used the words rewriting the gospel or reinterpreting the gospel. And, and at what point do we adapt to culture, which is what we do as missionaries. We adapt, right? We embed in a culture to speak to that culture, to serve that culture. And so that would be orthopraxy. And the other side would be orthodoxy. And somewhere in the middle is dogma. And I think it's dogma that people are fed up with. But how do we walk that fine line um, between orthodoxy and orthopraxy? I think um
2: oh sorry did you want to go
1: first I'm still thinking sorry
2: um, I think it's important that we we're coming off the hangover of talking about truth as a set of ideas um whereas I think you know Jesus very much is like I am the truth um and I think that's why when when Pilate says you know what is truth and Jesus doesn't give him an answer it's such a tragic moment because truth is staring him in the face. Mm. Truth personified is right there, and I, I, Jesus can't sort of say any more than be there. Yeah. I, mm. I think I think that what people, when when we when we say that people really want authentic community, I think that boils down to people don't want to be abandoned. Yeah, um, they want to know that love, unconditional love, is there for them. And I think that I think that that is the expression of the truth. So I think to, to bring the truth to people and I'm not talking about like, oh, there's, you know, there's never a time to discuss ideas. There's never a time to talk about theology. There's never a time to preach, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that fundamentally what people are looking for is loving presence. Yeah. Um, and I think in our neighborhood in particular, it's a transient neighborhood. People come and go do good as come and start projects to help people for a couple of years and then leave. And what people really want and respond to. And what I see people responding to here is they just want you to be around. They want you to live what you think. And they want you to show love and compassion. And when things get hard, when they start to suffer um, that you don't just sort of up and leave or sort of go no contact or withdraw or say this is too difficult. I think that I think we have I think we have not done a good job of bearing each other's burdens and bearing the pain of the world. And so I think that we need to move to mission is mission is primarily about sharing the divine loving presence of Jesus. And that is the truth. It's yeah. just, it's not an idea. It's not a concept. Um, it's a real, tangible thing. I think that's what people are really intangible. hungry for. Well, it's tangible, yeah, tangible, intangible, isn't it? Yeah. Semi tangible. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, guess, uh, um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think I probably would phrase it differently. Je- I will, probably wouldn't say that we're doing any rewriting of the gospel or. Um, I think the thing is that instead of the gospel, the church has a long history of offering people fixes.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, here's your problem. Well, I, in my bag of dogma tricks, I can, I've got this for you. And it (laughs) will fix your problem.
1: Oh, I like the dogma tricks. That's good.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, And um, we like are, instead of like wading into the mess of like, oh, crud, I don't know how to handle your family situation. There are a lot of really complicated things going on here, and I'm not sure what the clean answer is. Yeah. Um, we've wanted to, you know, pull something out of our bag of tricks and hand people fixes. And, and that's a, you know... I've learned compassion for that because it turns out, as I hang out with my activist friends in East London who have nothing to do with the church, that's just a human impulse. Yeah. We always mm-hmm. want to fix something that we see is broken. like, and, and that would make us feel better because that means that broken things get fixed and the world is not so scary and we have a handle on what's going on around us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, you know, hu- Christians are human and we love that sense of, like, I can fix it. Here's my Band-Aid. Um, but when you read the gospels and this is why I say we're not actually rewriting anything or repackaging, even we're just offering, what does Jesus do? He never has a quick fix. I mean, sometimes he has a, like he can heal, like sometimes there's a radical intervention of healing, but, um, you know, I love, um, I think it was Shane Claiborne points out that if you trace through the gospels, all the blind people that Jesus encounters, he never heals them the same twice mm-hmm. a different okay. healing every time and that that sense of like i i just i see you in your mess i see you in your pain and i want to be with you i do want it to get better but mostly i just want you mm-hmm. and everybody wants to hear this. um it's just that that's a scary thing to say as the like human face of of this offer that you know that's that's our role is we're like the you know physical Face making this offer from Jesus. And it's scary because that invites rejection. It invites a lot of mess into your life. Mm -hmm. And um, it means that, like, you really need God to show up and work, which means you have to believe God's going to do that, which we prefer not to actually need our faith. We'd like to have it in the back pocket for later, but actually, like,
3: having to rely on it is terrifying. So, yeah.
1: Thank you for that. Not easy.
3: Yeah, that's a not, not neat answer. <laughs> well, I think that's good though. I think not, not neat, neat
0: answers, answers is most of the time when I get to have a conversation with people about Jesus or about faith is because I didn't have a neat answer. Right. I had like I had like ten percent of like here's a starting place. Want to go further? Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that's I think the deconstruction and the general liminal lima, liminality and the sense mm-hmm. of like, we don't know what we're doing. That is sort of washing over the church right now is God's grace to us to remind us of the you know, welcome to reality.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Well said. Yeah. Very yeah. well said.
3: So much of what you're saying is just about staying, mm. not, not running away when it gets hard and messy or confusing or uncomfortable. It's just this, Stayingness, this loving presence and staying presence. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we're yeah, all we- terrified that we're not worth loving. You know, we're all terrified that no one will stick by us when it gets
1: really bad. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's good. And, and you've experienced that. You both have hands-on experience in your introduction to, you know, divorce in the family or uh, being radically shaken by the faith of your youth and what, what that looks like now. I mean, those are mm-hmm. those ground shaking kinds of events. Um, so, you know, we get that having experienced things like that. We get that and, and can bring that into our mission and into our ministry, which is so critically important. I, we, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but um, I had a conversation a couple of days ago with Alan Hirsch and uh, he mentions a, a number of things that help us to become movemental and what the Uh, boosters are for that movement and what the blockers are for that movement. But one of the things Mm -hmm. he says is liminality and communitas. And I, of course, was, you know, brought to attention of communitas, because that's the name of our organization. And he said, you know, a lot of people just assume that means community or relationship with each other. And it's kind of, you know, rose-colored glasses. And he said, but the roots of that word um, historically are actually long-term relationships that are established through hardship or trial. Um and that's kind of what you're explaining here, right? And when you have a community of people that have their interpretation may be that they've been viewed as a project to come work with and then you know fix it and go. Yep. That that people are willing to say, no, we we are we are here in the hardship. We're not here to try and solve the hardship. Um, that's profound. So thank you for doing that where you guys are.
0: Lame Jesus. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I think that's um, so, yeah, sorry. That reminds me of this story. I feel like that we have that. I have this story that really encapsulates that. So we have this okay. friend, I'm going to call him Mike. That's not his name. Um, <clears throat> Mike had, um, He grew up in sort of some sort of church context, and it's clear that that was not a good thing, but he won't really talk about why. Um, So he's he's in a small percentage anyway, because he did go to church as a kid. But um, we always, you know, we're very upfront about what we do. And um, Mike's wife and I get along really well. We made friends at the park. We have little boys the same age. But Mike was very standoffish for many years and we we're a part of this sort of group of families that sort of formed around having little boys the same age and we buy pizza and eat it in the garden and that became like a, a real community that we are part of mm. no one there except us knows jesus and that's we're fine because that's where god has put us um we would love for it to change but um but mike was very standoffish and um it was clear that we made him a little uncomfortable um so during lockdown So at this point, we've been friends for about five years during lockdown and two things happened. Um, So the only way that you could socialize here was um, through taking walks. And there's a big wetlands area near us. so people walk there. And um, if you wanted to go for a walk with someone who is not from your household and and have a cup of coffee, that was very dangerous because some ladies did that and got arrested for having a picnic. Um, And so friends who were like, I just want to like I just want to like a latte. Um, I would say, OK, look, I have a dog collar, um, like a you know clerical shirt, which means that I'm clearly marked as an essential worker and the police will not mess with me. I oh will buy God. you a coffee and take you for a walk wearing my dog collar. And that is like that will be my you know service that I can offer you. So I'm doing this with one of the members of this group of friends. And we happen to bump into Mike and his wife. And he looks at me, and he's known me for five years now, and he sees me in that like clerical shirt, and he just falls off the path laughing. Oh. I don't – to this day, I'm not entirely sure what the joke was, but I just kind of laughed with him. like, <laughs> okay, <yeah."> like, <laughs> okay. And then <clears throat> two weeks later, we're in um, – we're going for another walk in the wetlands, and his little boy is there. And his little boy runs up to me. He's like, so my dad and I, we don't like Jesus, so we call him Jesus. And I said – that's hilarious. Did you know that in America, there's these um crackers called Cheetos. And if you say that fast enough, it sounds like you're saying Jesus. And he's like, <laughs> and runs off. And after the next time I saw Mike, he's like, hey, look at this picture of this cool way this my friend of mine has found to do church during the pandemic. And he will talk to us now. But you just keep showing up. Yeah. I still yeah. don't know why that, those two things were like the turning point. I don't know what questions got answered, but now he comes to us.
3: Wow, so wild, yeah, you just never know, no, you don't <laughs> cheetos great, yep
1: <laughs> well, it says so much about just I mean it's so simple. I don't know why we've tended to make things so hard, but just showing up, just being there and and being authentically ourselves, right, instead of some pretense full of platitudes, so. Yes.
3: That's uh, important. <laughs> Which so, I do feel like you guys model particularly well. And that is a real bright spot. I appreciate that about you.
2: Yeah.
3: Thank you. Thank you. That's good. Mm-hmm. Nice.
1: Yeah. Likewise. Likewise. So um, we've been answering this question, but we've been doing it in a roundabout way. The question is, what do we, as the post-Christian, postmodern quote unquote church, what do we have to offer?
2: I think the most important thing that we have to offer is is listening ears. And I think, um, I think a moment ago you said, like, I don't know why we make it so so complicated. I think the reason we make it so complicated is because we're in a panic. Um, cause we, you know, we see our declining numbers, we see, we're not able to do the things that we used to be able to do. And essentially we're in a panic of, oh crap, well, let's just try everything and, and anything and let's reinvent the wheel. Um, because we're, we're scared of being irrelevant. We're scared. We're essentially scared that Jesus isn't real and didn't pro, mm-hmm. you know, that his promises are not real um and and i think that i think that one of the most important things that we can we can do is to is to listen to people's stories to be patient long enough to hear the whole thing um not just to hear the snippets that we can respond to Uh, and i think the other thing that we have to offer is we are supposedly in relationships with the divine being um that changes us and makes us uh different and i think i think living around people long enough that they can see that that long enough that their own curiosity is sparked um ready to be ready to be loving and to respond it sounds so simple that it shouldn't be that because it doesn't it doesn't sound strategic or clever enough but (laughs) i i really feel like that's That's the core of it is to listen well, to be patient and to be ready to love. I think that is what we have to offer.
0: I would, I would agree with all of that. I think, um, I think one of the things that has been really dawning on me as like, this is what I have to offer people is, um, is hope. Um, I think I have a, I have a lot of friends who are very optimistic. You know, they, they want to believe good things are happening. And I have a lot of friends who are very, like, activists, and that comes out of a place of desperation, of seeing that the world is a mess and mm-hmm. needs help. And that is obvious in our neighborhood. There is, like, teenagers dying of knife crime every other month in my neighborhood, like, the streets that I walk. Um, and the thing is that, like, real hope is neither of those things because real hope says, yes, we have massive problems and I can't just, you know, paint over that with optimism. And at the same time, I'm not full of despair in the face of this because I am like, I really do think change is possible. I do think, and, and, and I can believe that because I I don't have to rely on my own energy and I don't have to rely on some fable of the goodness of humanity, which I'm sorry, but like in recent history, it's really hard to believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, I, I'm like, I'm like, I'm expecting someone else to show up and do things that I can't do. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, I'm here on the ground as support staff and I'm excited to be part of it. Yeah. Um, and that is a place that, I see people like, I see people gravitate towards when I can actually inhabit that space of like, I'm support staff, I'm waiting for the real like, power to show up and make changes. And I think it will. Um, I see people gravitate towards that, Mm -hmm. because everyone wants to believe that everyone wants that hope, but nobody has, like, most people don't have a story that allows it. Mm-hmm. They either need to have us they either have a story where we just have to believe that people are really better than we they look like they're being right now, or uh, they have a story where like everything's a mess and we have to fix it ourselves by just like grunt effort. Um and and neither of those is sustainable. Neither of those leads to a life that is joyful or you know what people are looking for.
1: know. Yeah. Tell us. Tell us a little bit about what you're currently engaged in, in the neighborhood, and, you know, maybe what, we talk about hope, and that's fantastic. I'm completely with you, Constance, on that. Um, And yet, the work that you're engaged in is also really hard, so.
0: Yes. um, (laughs) That's part of the hope.
1: (laughs) Right? Yeah, so what would you say to, to people who are maybe thinking about doing the kind of work that you're doing? Um, Mm -hmm. and, and what should be some of the things that they absolutely, you know, avoid because maybe you didn't and you learned from it. All
0: right. I'll go first, but I'm sure you have a lot of answers for this one too. Um, so broad strokes, some of the work that we're doing, um, most of the work that I do is just hanging out with people in various contexts and coming up with excuses to hang out with people. So this morning I went and did a very <laughs> brutal weights workout with someone and I'm regretting that now because I've right. been, but it was a way to hang out with someone. Um, so a lot of it is like um, pretty random, but the things that we do in the community that are like visible are we run a community, we run a community garden at the back of um, a community center on a local council estate, which is subsidized housing. And so we have like raised beds in the middle of this housing estate and we're trying to grow food. Um and we are moderately successful at that. Like I think, like, you know, maybe 60% of the things we plant actually get harvested in some pretty good. I mean, yeah, it's not that bad. <laughs> um, it's better than it used to be. We're learning. Um but it's um it's one of these moments of like <laughs> This is why I say hope and not like something more fluffy, because um, the garden is, you know, I'm I'm not a great gardener. We don't have volunteers that come as often as I would really or anywhere near as often as we need them to. Mm -hmm. Um, Most people on the council estate can't actually physically see the garden. And so they just don't know that it's there no matter how many times I put like leaflets through their doors saying, hey, we're growing food. Want to come join us? No. I keep meeting people who are like, what? There's a garden? sweetheart it's been there for so long, um but we keep showing up mm-hmm. and we keep showing up and they, so the community center staff knows us and so when they have someone who's like going through something they're like hey do you want to come on a wednesday because there's some gardening and they'll make you a cup of tea and you can kind of sit amongst the foliage
3: mm-hmm.
0: um and when the when the council decided to redevelop the estate and build a bunch of rich houses amidst the poor, like families mm-hmm. there, uh, I was the person who organized the, like, pr- the resistance movement <laughs> protests um, that ended up, it hasn't happened yet. I think it might still, but we managed to delay it at least a few years because I was just there and I show up mm-hmm. enough Um, And so it's like, on the one hand, don't go in there with some idea that you're going to like grow lots of food and feed the neighborhood and heal all the internal wounds and grow this great community because everyone shows up in your garden because that will not happen and expecting that will break you. And it nearly broke me. Um, So that sense of like, I'm going to do this and I know how it's going to go and it's going to be great is deadly. You don't know how it's gonna go. Yeah. Um, but you just show up and do it and you keep showing up and doing it. And until until something either the spirit speaking to you or like something very clear that's like this is God communicating is like it tells you to stop.
2: You know, we have this um we're part of this inner faith group in our area. Um and um for for a year we were the only kind of Christian group that was part of the inner faith group. Um I think it's really important to show that you can get on with a lot of different people. Um, And especially in a very religiously plural neighborhood. um, I think peacemaking is, is really important part of our, of our work. Um, Yeah. I I mean, similarly, I would say to people like plan less and strategize less um, and be available more.
1: Hmm.
2: And I think like oh I, I'm gonna I'm gonna sound all old school here, the whole like count the cost, but I think that this work drains you very quickly to death if you are doing it for some reason other than you have some genuine love in your heart for for God, for yourself and for others. Um, and I think if you if you do it because you want to save the world or subconsciously pay Jesus back for what he's done in your life or prove that you can do this thing in post-Christendom that everybody else can't figure out how to do, you, you know, it kills you. Um, and I think all the times where I have shown up with a bright idea already in my hands, that is when it has, uh, that's when it's gone to crap. Mm. Uh, the times where I have genuinely not had any clue what I'm doing at all and have and have just quietly played under my breath, Jesus, I'm really, really going to need you to show up right now because I have no idea what's going on. Um, those have been uh, the most quote-unquote successful uh times and Mm. so i think you know i would say to anybody who's sort of considering this life it is it is for anybody you don't have to be Mm. like some superhuman or some super christian to be able to do it um at the same time you really have had to have done business in your heart with am i doing this as a response to love and out of love or am I doing this because I want to be cool or a big shot or something? Cause it's just it's just not a glamorous lifestyle. It's not a career. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not Instagrammable. Uh and uh yeah. <laughs> Don't even try.
0: Yeah. Well, and alongside that, like we all have mixed motives. Let's be real honest. Like we yeah, yeah. all come in with the sure. like I love Jesus and also I would like to, you know, save some people myself because I think I could help him out in that way. Um, I, I think the the main thing is that like the parts that are not the love of Jesus will get broken. Yeah, if That's what you're leaning on. Then you get stabbed like with a broken stick, like it, you will bleed. Um, and so um, you can't prevent that. It's going to yeah. happen, but you, um, when it does do you have this choice like you know am i mortally wounded and must now quit the field mm-hmm. um, because actually all i had when i came out here was this desire to fix everything um or like am i potentially mortally wounded but jesus is with me and is my life comes from him, actually, and this is a chance for me to let go of something that I didn't need to be holding in the first place. And it's going to hurt a lot, but I trust that God is making me into His image, and God is working through me in this place. In the midst
3: of that, such helpful advice. It's you inspirational. Guys, I mean, it, it sounds horrible, but that but you're absolutely right. And and if we get disillusioned by that, then then we miss yeah. out on all all that's coming. And so. I really appreciate you sharing that.
1: Yeah. The wisdom you're displaying here is just so inspiring. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, you're
3: gonna give me and a big the head.
1: fortitude, you know, the fortitude. <laughs> it's,
3: it's, it's okay. You're going to get mortally wounded if you have a big head and then you'll exactly. Heal, Don't you
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I've been, we've both been in at least some formal ministry roles since we were 19. And, um, the, There's some real upsides and real downsides to growing up in ministry. Um, One of the downsides is that people are even more idiots at that age than they are later. Mm -hmm. Um, So (laughs) you get to see a lot of idiocy in yourself (laughs) and in the people around you. Um, And you get to make a lot of mistakes and you get to face that choice of like, is this the end for me? A lot. Mm -hmm. Um, But the upside is that then that becomes who you are pretty quickly, because mm-hmm. if you survive two or three rounds of that, like, then, you know, the next time it comes around, like, this is going to hurt like hell. And at the other side of it, it will be worth it.
1: That's really good. You guys are answering all of my questions before you have a chance to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, no, no. the question, What one of the things you really just answered is what are some of the greatest challenges for next generation leaders? Um, mm. But I think you just beautifully answered yeah. that. Um, yeah. so,
0: so yeah. Thank you. I think, I think the upcoming generation has a particular challenge that I didn't have hmm. though. And I would like to mention, um, so I'm, uh, Xennial. So like I'm, a, I was on the cusp of Gen X and, and the early millennials,
1: yeah.
0: an elder millennial. Um, and <laughs> what that means is that I, like grew up ideologically, philosophically in a world that was shaped by postmodernism and postmodernism is very open-ended and very into like, there are no clean answers and, you know, keep asking the questions and truth is, you know, multifaceted. What I'm seeing with Gen Z and the younger millennials is that um, truth is much more crystallized and is much more black and white. And um, I think that's a real challenge because, you're going to get that stamped out of you if you're in ministry. Your your right answer will be shattered in front of your face, and you're going to have to find Jesus on the other side of it if you're going to survive. And, um, you know, I don't think any culture prepares you to follow Jesus because they're all fallen. But I think that the particular challenges of ministry are hard. Um, if, you, if you have a neat category of what is good and what is not good, what is right and what is not right, um, because you will encounter a situation that destroys your boxes and you will find yourself at the end of your wisdom trying to fumble for Jesus. And I um, I think it takes great courage to step into that um, for anyone. But I think especially our younger leaders are going to need a lot of courage to step into that because, um, you know, I watch how cancel culture has and I know that's a buzzword, but like I watch how social media culture has sort of simplified everything down to small bites mm-hmm. and small bites are either good or bad. And there's no room for nuance and there's no room for gray area and there's no room for the yes, but um, that is real life. And it, and I think that um, having the courage to step into people's real life of yes, but and say, no, I see you. Jesus sees you. I don't have a clean answer come with me to explore the multifaceted human truth of Jesus, oh. meet this person, and it won't have a neat tagline. Um, you know, I think that does take a lot of courage. And I I pray that, you know, I trust that God is raising up some really courageous young people. And I'm really looking forward to meeting those very courageous yeah. young people that will be stepping into that. I think that's going to be a real, real challenge.
1: Yeah. Ooh. Ollie, oh, yeah, I'm curious because I, I, I love the conversations that we have. Uh what are you what are you reading right now? What are you dwelling on?
2: What am I reading right now? Um I just read a lovely book on kindness. Um mm. I can't remember who it's by, um, but I, I uh it was not somebody I had come across before. And um really they were talking about how um, modern Western culture has sort of fallen out of vogue with kindness. Kindness is something that you do for your children. um, Mm. And then otherwise it's sort of seen as a bit weak um, in, in other situations. And the person was really calling for us to practice kindness with people Mm. Uh, And I was just trying to let some of that sink really deep into the work that we do um, and about how I can be, how I can just be kinder um, to the people that I encounter. I I think when I'm on, like when I go on the tube here, you just, you know, it doesn't matter whether people are going to work or coming back from work. No one has a happy face. Mm. Everyone looks tired, anxious, anxious fed up um and i was just you know i've been reading this book and i've just been wondering about how to how to practice kindness um with with people who are anxious and tired and fed up and life's not going anywhere for them so that's that's what i've been reading right now i gotta
3: share uh, I was just talking with a psychologist a couple of days ago, and he said one of the biggest psychologists in the world, which I don't recall the name, and that's unfortunate, has put out some information based on research that it's almost an impossible thing, but that depression could be solved if everyone practiced three random acts of kindness a day. He said the euphoria that you feel when you are kind will lift you chemically in your brain out of depression. So it goes right along with what you were just saying if we could all step into that kindness
2: yeah yeah yeah
3: huge well we can always put the name of the book in the show notes you can send that to me after so we can
1: share that with
2: i'll look it up all right
1: so guys um thank you so much for the time you've taken here i feel like we've barely scratched the surface on so many things so we may invite you back for a round two uh at some point but if people want to learn more about you guys or, or what you're up to? Or are there places we can send them or point them to? Are you open to having people drop you an email with a question about what you're up
2: to? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Okay.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Well, we will provide all of that information in the show notes. So those of you listening who want to make a contact with Constance or Ollie uh, or both, you can certainly look that up and, and do that there. So Ollie and Constance, thanks so much for, being with us here today. Your stories are so inspiring. And uh, again, people can get in contact with you through the show notes. uh, And we sure look forward to hearing how things continue to go as you commit yourselves to being with um, the community in which you find yourselves. So thank you for that inspiration. And we look forward to seeing you again real soon. You've been listening to another episode of the Communitas podcast. We are available on all the major podcast platforms. If you've liked this episode, we encourage you to pass it on to a friend, leave us a rating. And also, if you'd like to receive a notification each time a new podcast drops, you can subscribe. And that will be right there for you in your text chain or your email box. We look forward to being with you again on another episode of the Communitas Podcast.